Hey everybody, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is going to be a little bit different. After our regular discussion, we're actually going to cut into an interview that I did with the creators of the book that we're reading here, uh, Matt Meyer-Lowry and Cassie Anderson. The audio quality on it is a little rough in patches, and by patches I mean the whole thing, and that's just a result of us not having the infrastructure to do it at a professional level or whatever, but Matt was really great about helping us get that all recorded, and I think regardless of the audio quality, there's definitely some stuff in there that is worth listening, so if you want to check that out, that's going to be after the main discussion, right around the 36-minute mark or so. Uh, So if you wanted to jump to that, that is also something that you can do. So enjoy the episode. And welcome to episode 14, should be 14, of Hello Fellow Kids. Uh, This is the first one that you're going to hear since we started. We uh, have been rearranging how we recorded things because we received some materials that we wanted to kind of prioritize. And so the whole thing's up in the air, but hopefully it'll sound good when it all comes out for you guys. So we are going to be doing Life Formed, Cleo Makes Contact by Matt Mayer Lowry and Cassie Anderson. It is another graphic novel. And uh, we received actually a free copy of this at Emerald City Comic Con this year. So thank you, Matt and Cassie. Appreciate it. This is Dark Horse Comics, which pretty solid stuff. It's not like yeah. a little indie thing or anything. It's like you made it if you're... If you're, you're at Dark Horse. <laughs> <laughs> and the story is effectively Cleo is 11. She lives with her dad, Alex. And uh, aliens attack. And the aliens can morph and look like people and one of the aliens takes the form of her father after he dies and they have a uh a sort of adventure we'll kind of go from there what'd you think of it i really really liked it good <laughs> end of episode <laughs> no suddenly like my mind went blank and like but but no like i remember um like josh and i had this email exchange not that long ago where uh, i think he was pondering all the books that we've read to this point and he said like are there ever like any good dads it seems like we just either have like eh dads where the mom does or not mom where the daughter has to do all like the uh (coughs) yeah has to do all the like the labor that goes into running a family or they're just not present at all so i felt this it was so great to finally have a dad in this like there's finally a dad present or a dad figure Right, because real dad dies pretty early. <laughs> he does. It's 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 devastating because he's a he's a very good father. I thought he was, and I don't know. It was just really refreshing to like have that for once because the books we have read have been very like mom centered. Yeah, or or the dads just screw everything up like right. Riverland. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I I came, along, I came along at the right time for us, I feel. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. I liked, um, it's got a, 
more muted color palette. Like, it's got a variety of colors, but they mm-hmm. all come from kind of this, like, kind of subdued tone, and it works really well with the story that's being told, and the actual, like, coloring focus of it is great. I really enjoy the art. Super expressive. Um, and, yeah, the writing is really good. I had a lot of fun with it. It was a nice, yeah. it's a pretty short read. It's yeah. it's under 200 pages, and there are there are a lot of sections that have very little or no dialogue. Right. Um, I mean, I think I read this in, like, an hour, just one sitting. Oh, cool. Um, but, no, it's it's fun. It's definitely... Uh, very enjoyable yeah i did I, it, it is it is all right do you want to jump in now sure okay jump in so here we go uh it's not really a chapter exactly is it more like issue one were these single i was, I was actually time? trying to figure that out let me check really quick sorry it would be really good if we'd done our research before okay. this we'll cut it out they won't know they won't know how <laughs> we'll we'll edit and post <laughs> Uh, I do not see anything about issues, so I think this was all published at once. Okay, so chapter one, I guess. We meet our heroine Cleo when she's at school about to give a presentation. As the teacher calls her name, she's actually in the bathroom having a panic attack. Oh, Cleo, samesies. Uh, Intercut with this is a race of aliens, one of them a slave who has been placed in an artificial breathing chamber, breathing alien air. Afterward, the head scientist praises the slave, but the slave isn't all that into it. Don't want your praise. I think you're awful. (laughs) (laughs) After school, Cleo is picked up by her dad, Alex, who is understanding that Cleo didn't give her presentation, but he says that her work had been good and she should be making more of an effort to put herself out there and not just relying on him all the time. They have dinner and a mini dance party when they're interrupted by a space battle happening in the sky. (laughs) Uh, Cleo wants to run right out and Alex stops her and goes out himself. He watches a kid get blown away and takes shrapnel through the chest like (laughs) serenity. (laughs) He's a leaf on the wind. Um, our buddy, the slave, comes out of one of the ships, uh, the crash-landed ships, and he comes to Alex's side, touching him, and then he morphs into Alex's likeness. Pseudo-Alex tells Cleo to run, calling her by name. He starts fighting off the other aliens, protecting Cleo, then takes her by the hand, and they run away, Cleo looking back at her real father's fallen body. I think the whole confusion of that was, like, really good, where she's just like, what? Yeah. And then he's just like, we gotta move. Right. She's like, it's like, okay, but, <laughs> Yeah, it's like, okay, I'll... I guess I'll get answers like, later. <laughs> I don't even have time to have a panic attack right now. This is so crazy. But her having the panic attack in the bathroom like took me back to school. And that's how I was with presentations. I actually left, like my group was once, get, that wasn't college and this happened. And I just gotten the news that medication wasn't working for my grandfather's cancer anymore. So I really was, was not in a good headspace for my presentation for school. And uh, we, we got up to, like, do it. And I turned to one of the girls and said, I don't think I can do this. And she just kind of looked at me like, what the fuck do you expect me to do about it? Kind of look, <laughs> we're presenting right now. And I just left the room. And I went to the room and um, I left the room and threw up. <laughs> and then cried. And then I went back and was able to give my presentation perfectly. My voice didn't even shake. So I guess that's all I need to do. Like, hang on, I need a puke and cry break. <laughs> then I can do this. <laughs> So the main story is obviously Cleo's, and then there are these, the scenes like you said with the slave, and... They call him slave, that's not just us inferring, like, he's clearly a slave. But they're like, Uh, slave, I'm very proud of you. And he's just like, my name's Jeff. Right. (laughs) Well, I call him pseudo-Alex through this whole thing. This does a really good job of... So it's fairly common in books to give you some information that doesn't make sense, but it'll make sense later. But sometimes they will do it in a way where... You're, you have so little information that you you don't even know where to put it in, like, your 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 files on the book that you just kind of throw it away until later. 
this was really good about giving you just enough to understand this is important pay attention to it you have a little bit of footing and then it really does a good job of revealing in subsequent chapters to the point where by the end of it you have a you have an understanding of the whole thing and i really like that it was doled out in a a useful amount it wasn't like yeah and it does start out with years ago half a galaxy away which is like just if you're trying to do star wars on a budget (laughs) (laughs) gosh the segments with just cleo and her dad are so great yeah they have such a good super cute relationship yeah he's he's enough of the like goofy dad joke kind of guy but also the like understanding sort of yeah well he has to be both mom and dad to her yeah since i uh, i don't i don't did they ever say what happened to the mom did she die when she when she was wee or did no i have a thought on that later though okay i guess we'll find out later (laughs) because i'm willing to follow this series because yeah i really liked i like this when she tells him that she couldn't do her presentation He's like, but you spent so much time on it, and you did great when you practiced it for me. And she's like, you're my dad. It's different because you love me no matter what, and you'll always be there for me, and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) I I wrote, this is why I don't show my art to my parents, because, like, if I show it to them, they're going to be like, it's really good. I'm like, I know you're going to say that. This is the only thing you can say. (laughs) I still show stuff to my mom because I know she'll say it's good. I go like, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Like all my my little cross-stitch projects. She's like, wow. I go, I know, it actually looks like something. I didn't give up and throw it away while yelling, which is what I usually do with everything I attempt. They're at home, and uh, Cleo takes a picture of a guy playing guitar and, like, cuts out everything except a little bit of his hair and then holds it up to her dad who's cooking to see what he would look like with a new haircut. (laughs) It's so cute. Like, this book is really good at... Small moments. I have that actually written in here literally just saying like i love these small moments or something yeah that that can like make or break a story for me oh yeah like i <laughs> and there's like just a two-page sequence of them dancing to music on the record player and there's no dialogue no lyrics it was or implied anything. that it was safety dance and i was like that is my favorite 80s <laughs> song <laughs> uh but yeah it's it's phenomenal um i love when the writer trusts the artist enough to tell the story without any of their words when you see how they work well enough together to just be like i just need you to tell this and they're like i got you and then you read it and you know exactly what's going on because right after they see the uh the spaceships outside the whole sequence of her preparing to go outside and him saying no wait here and then heading out on his own there's no dialogue no dialogue yeah but you see it with her looking and then immediately putting her jacket on and then he like puts his hand on her shoulder and then like points like stay here and then he looks out and she just kind of squints at like like oh, so you're going to be the hero. I could have done it. But like, in a <laughs> <laughs> um, but then she's also just really concerned. And it... Ooh, what kind of story would it have been if like Cleo had like run out and then she's the one who took the shrapnel and then like the slave came along and like took her form? Oh man, that would have been... That would be heavy. Really upsetting, yeah. Yeah. But there is there is no dialogue <laughs> whatsoever from page 16 to page 30. All mm. of that story is told without a single yeah. word. And that's, I love that. Um, and that includes the sequence where Alex dies and she goes to his body and then first meets the the shape-shifting alien. So I, I, I really, I can't get enough of when writers trust their artists to tell the story without bogging it down with narration. Mm-hmm. You mean like all of the American Gods comics? 
<laughs> I haven't read any of them. It's oh my gosh! It's like I've read the book before. Can you just tell it the pictures? It doesn't need to, like. And then I'm just kind of looking. I'm like reading it. And I'm like Neil. I know the story. Right. <laughs> like I can look from the picture what, what's going on. Did he do, do the really... script on it? Or did he just? I do probably like... shouldn't blame him. I don't know for sure. He probably just had like the story notes and then gave it to someone else to script. It's just I don't know. There's all like it's a cold, snowy day, and then you see like this cold, snowy landscape, and you're like, that was unnecessary. Right. I can see it's a cold, snowy day. Come there, on. Yeah, a lot so. of the a lot of the older comic book writers are really bad at that. Like, there's a reason why I very rarely read stuff that was written before like maybe the mid '90s because they would every panel had to have words. <laughs> And it's like you just throw it across and go TLDR. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though, like um, people praise um, Chris Claremont for having like a seventeen-year run on the X Men and having it. It's one of the considered one of the best X Men runs. And I'm not going to say that it's not good in terms of like the stories it tells and stuff. I just get so sick of him just narrating everything. It's like let the pictures. You have phenomenal artists. Just let them do their job. If you want to write books, write books. That's yeah. fine. But I, I like I've I've read stuff uh, like uh, going back to X Men when Joss Whedon did his run he had this whole segment where he had the 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 narration and the dialogue and then he saw the art come back and then he just removed all his words he was like you're right that does better than what yeah. I said yeah it's like good on you <laughs> I don't know why that's making me think of that movie Drive because <laughs> the uh, Ryan Gosling's character Driver you he doesn't really say much. And what lines they did give him, like, later they'd be like, no, he doesn't, he doesn't need that. Take yeah. it out, take it out. So he says even less than was originally scripted. That's cool. I wonder how long the script was. I'm curious about that myself. But it's a good movie. Go, go, go watch uh, Driver, Drive, Drive after this. I called it Driver. So yeah, the, the, the initial sequence when the alien takes Alex's body, I shouldn't say he because I don't know if these even have genders. I think they do. They because I think at one point somebody is male but takes a, a woman's body and they still refer to them as he, so. It, it, and by takes, it's not like they inhabit it or anything. It's like anamorphs rules. Yes. Where you, like, touch the yes. person and they absorb something. Yeah. And you then take on their form. Yeah, it kind, it it's kind not, of like. And it's not quite like body snatchers where, like, I, I grew this whole form out of this creepy pod, you know? Right, they actually, so they, so they basically just look like clay people without defined do. faces or anything. Yeah. Um. And then they touch somebody, and you basically, like, make a copy of, like, the memories and stuff like that. But I don't think um, all of them, I don't think all of them have that ability, or do they? Because I felt like if all of them had that ability, then they all would have just... Right. I think that might be what the uh, experiment on him was. Yeah. Was to make it... The, the, I think there was, like, a handful of them they did, because uh, we find out later that he's not the only one who has this ability, and that right. they infiltrated yeah. first. Yeah, yeah. So the, to make this invasion possible. Yeah, so the enemy clay aliens, they can morph, but most of them aren't taking, they're not, like, taking another human's form or something. They'll, like, shift their hand to be, like, instead of, like, a claw to be, like, a spear, or they'll change. Right. So the, they, they're they they're malleable, but they aren't, they don't have the... When when they, when they do that, it reminded me of uh, Terminator 2. <laughs> I haven't terminated. That, there's a liquid um, metal... A villain in Terminator 2 who basically yeah, makes their stab somebody really badly with yeah. a sword thing <clears throat> that comes out of there. And it does a pretty good job of Cleo being like, because like you just saw an alien come out and look like a little clay person and then look exactly like your dad and then it's calling you by name. So she's like, this is make it, no, 
But then at the same time, it's like, whatever he's going to do is objectively better than whatever What's these other things right are. Now. Yeah. And so, everything's happening all at once. So uh-huh. you just see it just kind of overwhelming her. Like, yeah. She's like, okay, I'll do this now. I'll figure it out later. Yeah, I will freak out later. I can't do it now. Which is pretty reasonable. Are we ready to move on? Yeah. Okay, chapter two. They run and go into a clothing store where pseudo Alex picks out some clothes so he can fit in with humans, I guess, and it doesn't look good. <laughs> Why would he understand fashion? It's right. great. Cleo asks if he's her dad, and he tells her he isn't. He's there to fight for Earth. Uh, back outside, Cleo is spotted by her old babysitter, Emily, who's ready to take Cleo to safety. There's buses that are headed out of town. She then spots pseudo Alex and urges both of them to get out of town, but Cleo says they need to find her grandma. Emily reluctantly leaves them. So pseudo Alex agrees to take Cleo to her grandmother's and uh, no cell phones are working so they can't call ahead and there's like several cell phones like scattered around her and he's like I told you they wouldn't work and she's like well I had to try. So I like Cleo. They go on foot and loot corner stores where Cleo shows him how to eat snacks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen her eat like an actual food, it's like snack foods. Like yeah, all of this. I'm just like, the, the, how is she still alive? What? Okay, so she eats the like cheese twists that like every show ever has always had a different name for them. So I never know what they're actually called. I don't <laughs> they're know. They're like cheesy puffs and cheese curls and yeah. <laughs> um, at another store, Cleo has him pick out different clothes to look more like her dad. So he gets like the t-shirt and jeans mm-hmm. to look more like her father. Uh, Pseudo-Alex also gets a pretty wicked-looking shovel to fight aliens with. He gives Cleo a lighter to make a wall of flame, and then he'll take the aliens out with a shovel. So it's like they're coming up with, like, battle plans together. Um, unfortunately, this battle plan doesn't work out since Cleo miscounts the aliens, but, uh, Pseudo-Alex leaps in and beats them down with a shovel. Cleo's overwhelmed by all this, and she goes to huddle on a porch. When she looks up again, Pseudo-Alex is gone, and she panics, running around until she collides with him. Because he left and he's coming back with snacks for her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They finally reach Grandma's house, but the place is in shambles with no sign of Grandma anywhere. Still, they settle down in the house where Cleo has her own room, and pseudo-Alex makes breakfast in the morning uh, until it's time to patrol for aliens. Cleo doesn't want to go and tries to talk pseudo-Alex into staying. And uh, annoyed with her, pseudo-Alex patrols on his own while Cleo plays with her toys. And this goes on for a few days. Or him just coming back, and then, like, she's, like, playing with her dolls, and he just kind of looks over, kind of worried, because it's, like, she's really regressing, and this is, uh, but, whatever. One day, while pseudo-Alex is out, Cleo goes foraging for snacks, and she finds a crashed bus. Nearby, someone's weakly calling for help, and it's Emily. She's badly wounded. Uh, Cleo feeds her snacks, and they talk, making a list of the best albums ever. Uh, Eventually, Emily dies, and Cleo goes back to the house, where pseudo-Alex is surrounded by dead aliens. Uh, when he came home and found she wasn't there, he panicked and searched all over for her and wasn't as careful as he usually was, so he accidentally drew them to the house. So they can't stay. Cleo hugs pseudo-Alex and tells him she's ready to fight. Did you notice when they first get into town and they're looking at the, the clothing store that uh, there's a U-dub oh, sweatshirt wow. on display? Oh my gosh. And I looked in the back and there, uh, the author and the artist are based out of Portland. So, okay. represent. Represent. <laughs> I, do, I do love him trying to figure out the whole clothing thing. And she's just like, whatever. Like, <laughs> You look like a jerk. Let's fix this. <laughs> Grandma's going to know you're not you if yeah. you show up looking like that. And remember, you're supposed to call her mom. He's like, okay. <laughs> Emily's got the rad, like, half head shaved and then the other yeah. half the hair long. 
most of the comics I read, the girls look like that. I know it's. <laughs> it's a cool. It's a cool hairstyle. I could not possibly pull it off, but I I like it. I kind of want to, but then I'm like, if I don't like it, it you can't just like tape the hair back on. <laughs> <laughs> you could just wear a hat for a while, I guess. <laughs> You're like, I wanted to look super cool. Like the kind of girl who'd be dying and then be like, no, we had to come up with albums that you have to listen to because they're awesome. I was, I, when I looked at the list, when you see the list later, they're like actual albums. And I was hoping, uh-huh. I was hoping they'd be like the fake movies, like in Ghosts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when we get to the list, I actually made note of the ones that I'd like listened to. She sews her name onto her backpack and it's like, it's one of those things that's like, it doesn't really add anything to the story. It just says a lot about the characters and lets you just kind of sit with them case i lose my bag i'll be able to find it yeah has my name on yeah um or it's something to do yeah or it shows she has sewing skills yeah exactly it's like this is her these are her skill set boys only want girlfriends with skills right (laughs) he offers when they get to grandma's house he offers her orange colored drink and it's uh (laughs) it's sunny o (laughs) but he's right orange colored drink it's not orange juice I like how you see there's the sequence of him out fighting every day while she's playing. Yeah. And, but then you can see her actively just grow bored of it all. Yeah. Like, it's like, one, these toys aren't great for an 11-year-old anymore. And two, you can only escape reality for so long. She knows that this is not going to last. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chapter three. While on patrol for aliens, Cleo teaches pseudo-Alex dad jokes, and it's very cute. <laughs> <laughs> then they set aliens on fire and make them explode, which is less cute, but at least it's productive. Uh, Cleo finds grenades in an abandoned military camp, which makes the explosions possible. One morning, Cleo wakes before pseudo-Alex and sees him in his blank slave form. Then he does wake and shifts to his Alex form. Later in the bathroom, Cleo succumbs to her grief. Then they continue to fight and locate the records on Emily's list of best albums, or at least some of them. Um, one night over a s'more campfire, they meet three other human survivors. And uh, this chapter, we also see flashbacks of uh, pseudo-Alex's first morphing experience, which was a young college student who warns that humans are going to fight back during an invasion and suggests that he can do the same. So we're planting the seeds for this rebellion he's doing now. There, there's yeah. only one book, so Josh gets to yeah, the point this, stuff out. Cause... Th- thankfully, Mara does most of her note writing when she writes her summaries, so she doesn't need to flip back to it as often as I do. The friggin' dad joke thing is great. <laughs> I love it I so much. Would. Okay, so here's his dad joke. So they have containers of gasoline that they're taking back to the house, and she's explaining it's like sort of like a play on words. Like, I say, I'm hungry. And you say, hi, Hungry, I'm Alex. Or I see a wasp and freak out, and you're all, don't worry, it'll be okay. And then she's just like, oh, you don't get it. Shocking. (laughs) And then she goes, these things are super hard to carry. And he's like, come on, Cleo, you can do it. I'm like, oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, you're picking up. (laughs) On Cleo's rock and roll quest page, (laughs) I own exactly one of those albums. Which one? Uh, Fever Ray. But there's a, there's a bunch of stuff in here. There's the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. There's Rubber Soul by Beatles. Um, there's Talking Heads album. I think later on Neutral Milk Hotel is in there. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do like that the 
so the this whole quest for music it's kind of twofold it's it's a way to distract her from like just having it be all heavy alien fighting all the time forever it gives her other things to look out for and to to work towards but it's also like it's kind of emily looking forward and being like okay if this is actually how things end don't let all of the great things that humans did disappear right you know it, it you know, preserve the good and and be able to you know communicate that to other people so by giving her this was the the some of the best that we ever made so make sure that that doesn't get lost mm-hmm. um because i think she knew she was pretty mortally wounded so yeah. it's like i gotta yeah because she said she'd been laying there for days for days um yeah. and that's that's one of the that's a common theme with any sort of apocalyptic fiction is like if you survive it doesn't do a whole lot of good because humanity isn't just humans being alive it's all of the things that we've done so far so it's important to preserve that as much as possible so that was their way of sticking it in here and i thought that they did well and yeah. t- especially tying it in with the fact that her dad worked at the record store and they right. they dance and stuff it's it they kept it tight thematically as well so yeah so they set up a they find like a whole box of grenades which is like whoa okay who just has boxes of grenades Oh, the military. I know. <laughs> but also, is that the safest way to store them? So they set up these bombs and they use... They set this up the bomb. They they use this little, <laughs> uh, little walking, talking doll as a distraction. And it says, can you fix my owie? I fell down and went boom. And then there's an explosion. <laughs> and Cleo's like, did you... You got it, right? The doll said, I fell down and went boom. And he's like, yes, I get it. It is like a dad joke. <laughs> and she's like, like what? No, it's not. It's actually funny. Yeah. He's like, it seems very similar to a dad joke. <laughs> I love that. So cute. All right. My one prediction. Uh, I predicted that the woman that he was uh, impersonating uh, when he, like, back on the alien ship or the alien planet or whatever, I predicted that she was Cleo's mom. She was a college student. Hmm? It said it said Many years, years ago. ago. Oh. Oh. That is my thought. Okay. Well, we'll see. So, chapter four. Cleo and Pseudo-Alex go visit where a lot of human survivors have holed up on a ferry boat. The people suggest that Cleo and Pseudo-Alex join them on some islands they hope are uninhabited. They aren't interested in fighting, so Cleo and Pseudo-Alex leave. As they walk away, one of the women they were speaking to has a alien walkie-talkie in her hand, saying that the traitor will be apprehended soon. The gasp. Uh, with a map they've received of an alien camp, Cleo and Pseudo-Alex go road-tripping with a boombox to blast their tunes. In the woods, they encounter a blonde family, one a teenage girl who turns down snacks, so automatically she outs herself as an alien to Cleo. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fight, and Cleo runs away and kills the teen girl, barfing afterwards. Pseudo-Alex is captured. Uh, we get more of Pseudo-Alex's backstory. He bonds with the human Aisha until the boss man takes her away to be killed because she's outlived her purpose and has been encouraging the slave to revolt. So, uh, prior to the invasion of Earth, the slave beats down the boss man and then commandeers a spaceship. So that's how he got to Earth. Okay, so there's, when they're, it's just the two of them again, and they're, kind of making plans for how they're gonna tackle this like alien camp Mm -hmm. and uh cleo has drawn a good little diagram (laughs) 
which includes things like drawing the aliens or writing so ugly. Uh, and, uh, she has a note to bring snacks, explosives, garden tools, a good attitude, and a lighter. <laughs> like, good on ya! Good attitude. <laughs> but then they have this moment where they're talking, and she kind of explains, my dad before, he thought that I could take care of myself, that he was wrong. He was seeing what he wanted me to be able to do, not what I really could. That's what parents do, I guess. See what they want their kids to be, not what they really are. Because I really had no idea. I didn't understand at all what it takes, what you have to be willing to do. You taught me that. And that's interesting because I think, one, it shows that she doesn't... She's 11, so she doesn't have the full scope of their relationship between her original father and currently. But she also recognizes enough that both of them provided important aspects of her growth and so that's kind of her way of saying like i know you're not my dad but you're still providing for me in yeah a way. you're doing a in good a, job yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're a so dad-like I, figure so i thought that was that was cool to acknowledge that it, she appreciates what he's doing and, and also it's kind of like telling him like my affection for you and how i hang out with mm-hmm. you i'm not just saying like oh you are my you're the new dad. Yeah. Like, uh, I I like you because you remind me of my dead dad. Right. You know? So it's just like, I like, I, like wh- I like what you bring to the table. Right. <laughs> and so that's why it, like, touches him. It's like, yeah. oh, I get to be a dad. Yeah, it's like, you as you is you good. You as you, yeah. You don't have to... Okay, right. I think my favorite sequence in the book is right at the end of this chapter. So, throughout the book, you see snippets of the alien language as humans... Uh, understand it and it looks it's almost like a kind of like kind of curved runes um so it's 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 symbolic instead of uh like using an alphabet that just uses like nonsense or whatever and so it's it's got like like it uses kind of like swoops and dots and like apostrophe kind of shapes but it's all as like one symbol is like usually their their entire word is one symbol and so she grabs this alien weapon and she had heard the activation word and so she's trying to figure it out and she can't quite get it, but she says it probably like 20 times. And each time the symbol is just a little bit different because she's, <laughs> she's kind of narrowing in on what the actual what sound, the sound is. is. And yeah. I think that's so cool that it's, it's like, it's like watching a word get spelled different ways, but it's not with our alphabet. It's with this symbol. And you see like the, the apostrophe move around a little bit and then the curve gets shorter and longer. And I just think it's, it's so well rendered. I think that's a great way to demonstrate like language barrier. And so I just, I nerded out about that. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> chapter five? Yeah, we're All already right. on the last chapter. So, chapter five. Uh, boss man has pseudo-Alex tied to a chair, beating and berating him for betraying him. After all, he'd done for him. Uh, pseudo-Alex asks to die like a proper slave, kneeling on the ground in front of his master. Boss man consents, though his captain warns him that this is totally a trap. <laughs> Meanwhile... Cleo's running around exploding stuff and for a second is overwhelmed by the enormity of the situation and wants to give up. But then she remembers Emily's album list and realizes the quest isn't over, so she keeps fighting. As does pseudo-Alex, who, of course, wasn't really contrite and beats the shit out of Boss Man. They blow through a window and Boss Man appears to have the upper hand when Cleo runs up and distracts him. He grabs her by the throat and then she stabs him through his throat and he drops her. Cleo collects pseudo-Alex and she blows up a few more things on their way off the compound. The next morning, they wake up on the floor of a cafe. Cleo readies herself for their upcoming battles and looks at a reflection in the mirror with newly earned confidence, then leads pseudo-Alex out the door with genuine excitement, making him smile. And they fight. I'm so glad that there wasn't, there wasn't like a twist that pseudo-Alex was 
like trying to capture her or something like right. that that would have been really dumb and they didn't do that and yeah. he's just a good guy yeah <laughs> i'm gonna feel bad if it turns out all these people actually had names because i'm just giving them like nicknames like boss man <laughs> his name appears to be like the at symbol but i don't know <laughs> how to say that yeah so after pseudo alex betrays boss man he uh he's like the captain or whatever he's like you betray me again you think you're one of them and he says, because of you, I am whatever I choose to become. And I liked that. Because of you, I'm straight. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, yes, you made me what I am, but you made me able to be something else. And it's like, so... Uh, like, a mirror, like a mirror of how pseudo-Alex has helped Cleo. Right. Be, yeah. <laughs> Connection. Yep, and at the end I just wrote, what a fun little story. Yeah, that, that it was, was just, my reaction. It was just really pleasant. Yeah. It's, I mean, not that it's like all like happy and rainbows, but like. No, the, no, but. The reading of it is just really enjoyable. It's, it's, it knows what it wants to do. It does it well. It's like, it's just good. <laughs> well, it's just one of those things that could have been written grimdark and has been written grimdark. And it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. not happy things happen, but it it's also... not all going to be miserable. Yeah. When unremitting, unremitting misery is a little, you know, I, I was thinking more like tunnels. Tunnels, <laughs> tunnels was just unending misery. There was like no little moments that like right. make things happier. It's just more like little moments that just heap the misery on harder. Yeah. So the, this one, it just, it gives you like a tonal break with like, hey, we're going to joke about dad jokes. Right. Well, the other direction it could have gone is the, the really common thing right now. And I'm glad that I think we're starting to move away from it which is you don't take anything seriously. Everything is self-aware and tongue-in-cheek. Right. And it just, it's like Deadpool, except if everything was Deadpool all the time. Like, that's kind of, like, where humor is at right now for things, is, like, you just don't take any of it seriously. And it's, like, it gets it just gets kind of exhausting when everything is like that. So it was really nice to have the jokes be, like, actual character human interactions. And it's, like, it's not, like, oh, you know, this isn't some comic where, like, they're just, like, being right. so self-aware of we it. We found like... these conveniently placed grenades. And yeah. And look at the, the fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, none yeah. of that crap. Like, that stuff just gets really exhausting. And it wasn't conveniently placed. They purposely went to a military base. So, yeah. I mean, of course, they would have weaponry there. Yeah. I gave I gave it four stars. Yeah. Pretty solid. Yeah. I am definitely interested in the next book. And again, this came along at the right time because I felt like we've read a lot of like mediocrity for for a while. So we we kind of wanted something that would be all like, yes, all of this. I'm having so much right? fun. I'm having fun reading this. This doesn't feel like a chore. I guess we should be clear because they would be hearing this right oh. after these two. Oh, no. Okay. Which, so like Sorry. In, in what you've heard what is you've not heard mediocrity. Is, no, But no. we've recorded like. So we have... We're all out of order right now. Yeah, we have two episodes after this that we've already recorded. And there's stuff not for the podcast that I've read that have been, yes. has been mediocre. So I'll, <laughs> I'll assess my, reassess my statement here. But the, my, my reading habits at this time has yes. been filled with a lot of mediocrity and yes. disappointment. So I was very delighted by this book. Yeah. Which I probably would have liked anyway, even in the context of like reading like yeah. really good stuff. Like if I had read this on the tail end of... Um, uh, Fable Haven, I still would have enjoyed it just as much, but it just had more of that shine for just like, oh, this isn't bad. Right. <laughs> like, this is so fun. I like the artwork. Mm-hmm. And just, just everything. Yeah. I gotta say, my biggest complaint about it is that it's only available in paperback. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> yeah, he, like, he likes the hardback. Like, 
it's not like it it's not an absolutely perfect book but i mean it's it doesn't have any really glaring flaws or anything like that it's just really competent and enjoyable like when somebody hands you a free thing you're like kind of like <laughs> oh no oh, you just maybe this out for free. maybe <laughs> maybe this isn't gonna be good and then you read it and you're like wait this is amazing <laughs> so yeah this is a lot of fun definitely definite recommend especially for people listening to us if you've felt the way we do about any of these i think you'll it hit on a lot of points we enjoy about YA and comics and all of that, so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, this is something that we have never done before on the podcast. We have uh, the creators of Life Formed here. We have Matt and Cassie, and they're going to be chatting us up about some things. So, if you guys want to just do a quick introduction, and if you got anything you want to plug before we get started here... I'm uh, Matt Merrill-Lowry, and I'm the writer and co-creator of Life Formed. And uh, we've got the second volume of Life Formed, if you want to check that out. It just went up on previews, so you can order it uh, through your local comic shop. And it's also available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and the like. It will be out in September. Uh, yeah, it's really great. Cassie did an amazing job on it. Um, <laughs> And you can find all our Lifeformed information at lifeformedcomic.com or find me at mattmlpdx on Twitter and Instagram. And all our uh, stuff is up there with regards to the second volume. And I'm Kathy Anderson. I'm the artist on Lifeformed 1 and 2. Um, I'm also the artist and writer on Extraordinary, the story of an ordinary princess, um, which is my comic that comes out in July. And you can pre-order that on through previews or Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Yeah, and you can find me on Instagram at Kathy J. Anderson. I'm also on Patreon, that same handle, uh, and on Twitter at Cassie Does Art. Awesome. Let's get started with the question that I'm sure starts any interview. How did you guys, uh, how did y'all get started working on this together? Yeah, I, I started coming up with the basic idea for the book a long time ago. It's even longer than last year when we talked about it now, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was uh, probably seven years ago, six or seven years ago, and... And this year is the five-year anniversary of Cassie and I uh, getting together for coffee and um, meeting for the first time after I saw her <laughs> stuff on Instagram and Tumblr and the like. And so, yeah, we met up. Um, I was just looking. I was. This was kind of my shot at doing something uh, with writing um, after writing most of my life and not really trying to get it out there. Uh, I decided it was time. So... I just started looking for artists and I saw Cassie's work and thought it, it did a lot of what I wanted it to do for the story, which was just really clean storytelling and, and that kind of thing. And then it also added a real like heavy emotional component to it with the way she's able to uh, have characters act and cover such a wide range of emotions. So yeah, so we got together and uh, hit it off and started from there. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was gonna say, yeah, we met up and um I really when when he get me sent me the script, I really enjoyed reading about the characters and the story has changed so much from the original script that he sent me. Uh but the characters and how they act and stuff are very much the same. And I think that's a lot of what is the hook of the story, is the characters more than anything. Yeah, I was gonna ask, what was that what what kind of initial kernel did you have? Like where where did where 
where did this start versus how it got to be what it is right now? What was the first thing that kind of came together? So I have a couple daughters, and when I was kind of coming up with this idea, um, they were, uh, you know, obviously quite a bit younger, but I was looking for stuff to read with them um, rather than sort of like, you know, a lot of times with kids stuff, you're either like reading, you know, Tiny Titans or something that's great, but um, maybe not a lot of content there to chew on in terms of like talking about it afterwards and that kind of thing. And then, or you're reading, you know, like old X-Men or something, and there's like maybe too much content to chew on there. So um, I was trying to think of a story that would be somewhere in between where you could read it with your kids and then talk about it afterwards. So that was sort of my target idea. And I've just, you know, kind of started off in it or started off as it sort of is and sort of like a founded in the eighties movies that I like, like Terminator and aliens and that kind of thing. And I, my main, my kind of kernel of the thought was like, what if, what about like a Terminator for kids? Um, <laughs> and, and what would, uh, you know, who is like, who's like 11 or 12 year old Sarah Connor, if uh, that kind of thing happens. So I'm a big Terminator nerd. So um, yeah, so it kind of spun out of that. Um, uh, yeah. And then, and then like when I hooked up with Cassie, um, a lot of things shaped the story, like connecting with Dark Horse and connecting with Dave Marshall, who was uh, now the editor in chief there, but who was an editor before who brought us in uh, when he saw the pitch and uh, so that definitely shaped the story, but then also seeing the artwork really shaped the story and made me lean even more into like the emotions of it all. So I think, um, you know, whereas I might've originally pictured it just cause it was what I was reading at the time and sort of, you know, I don't know, a Marvel style or something. Um, I think it sort of pivoted a lot, uh, with Cassie's influence there too. So, so you were saying that prior to this, you'd written a bunch of stuff, but you hadn't really put it out there. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is kind of the the first thing really out there with your name on it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I did, uh, I studied like journalism and creative writing in college eons ago. And uh, so most, you know, I did like short stories and that kind of thing. But yeah, I'd never really, I never really published anything. And actually, when I started this project, I was imagining it as like a TV show pilot script. But then I realized after... Uh, working very hard on it and developing it that I didn't really have a way to produce a TV show. Um, <laughs> and I've read comics all my life and I came across some original art from uh, that I saw a student had done. And I was like, oh, I could hire somebody to draw a comic. And it just kind of put it together in my head for the first time for some reason. Um, I, I felt sort of foolish that it took, you know, 40 years for that to happen. But uh, uh, yeah, so... So luckily, I think it ended up in the right, uh, the right media for itself and also didn't just end up, you know, in my drawer with all my other writing. So, well, yeah, that gives me hope because I am currently in the position of I went to school for creative writing and I'm just now trying to actually like write short stories and stuff and send them out there. So it's way to go. You know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, good. Yes. It's I mean, like it's it's such a double-edged thing. Like it's, it's totally worth it, but it's also, you know, assuming you have a day job or something, it's also like this whole other volume of work that you take on. So it's, um, but then like when somebody reacts to your story, it's completely worth it. But then you go, then you go months without putting anything new out and you kind of lose that. So yeah, it's a, 
<laughs> it's an up and down uh, type of thing. But, but but yeah, that's great. It's totally, uh, I would say totally worth it. So, uh, so Cassie, what were you working on before this? Yeah, I've worked on some uh, like shorter projects and stuff or done um, kind of more behind the scenes comic work on other comics. Uh, this is the first book that's out there with my name on it, really. Um, I've also I've been on a couple anthologies and self-published some of my own stuff. But yeah, this is the first like big publisher type book. Yeah, I mean, getting the first book with your name on it to be from Dark Horse, like that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's no small feat. So I, <laughs> yeah, I think you're in a good position. Yeah. If that's if that's if that's like your 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 building block. Yeah, uh, it seems like a, a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> who would you say? And this doesn't have to be specifically for life form necessarily. Uh, who would you consider uh, influential in your uh, writing or artistry, both? Uh, historical and kind of the your contemporary peers in comics today or if it's not in comics it's fine too man there are so many people and things that have influenced me over the years um and i think it changes season to season for me like uh right now i'm super fascinated by lucy nisley's cartooning uh, and storytelling which is so different from uh <laughs> what i do for life formed i also love Annie Wu's art. Um, I'm not sure what she's working on right now, but she's done some really awesome comics. She's really great with action and movement. Um, that's something I try to emulate um, in some of my own work. Yeah, and I love looking at coloring on comics too. Like the Gotham Academy colors were so gorgeous. Stuff like that really makes me want to create comics and, and try my own style and or try on other people's style and figure out how I can make that work with my own stuff. Yeah, I guess like I, as I mentioned, I grew up in the 80s. So a lot of my stuff uh, or influence, I think, comes from back then. And I mean, a lot there are a lot of movies in there, uh, like I mentioned, but also the like Chris Claremont's X-Men and Larry Hama's G.I. Joe stuff from the 80s. Uh, was like how I got into comics and I don't know that I will can uh, approach anything like what they do, but like, I don't think I can take that out of my understanding of trying to do to make comics, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so much stuff. Um, so probably all the usual 80 suspects would be in there. And I go back to those a lot uh, because I just feel like they had such a great, like mastery of what was possible in comics. Like it's not every, like every aspect is so well formed from the writing all the way through to like sometimes crazy execution, you know, in like Frank Miller comics or something. Sure. Um, so that's, that's really great. Uh, contemporary stuff. Like I really like uh, Tom King's work, um, especially like Mr. Miracle and vision and Omega men. And I feel like he does, he does a really amazing job of doing what I kind of want to do, which is like bring the mundane sounds boring, but uh, bringing like the everyday sort of emotions and stuff to the more fantastical subject matter and making you cry a lot. I guess that's kind of what my, <laughs> ulti ultimately my goal is. Uh, so, or thinking something's really cool. I guess that, that too. Uh, so yeah, like his work and all the artists that he works with, like Mitch Gerrards and um, Walta and stuff like those guys are just amazing. And 
Yeah, so I think that there's a ton of stuff. Oh, and uh, I, I Love Copra by uh, Michelle Fife. It's like a crazy superhero comic that he does all himself, and it's just like completely inventive and from the writing to the art. And so I don't know, my ultimate aspiration would be to do something like a, that's as unique and uh, creative with the medium as, as that, if that's possible for a writer to do. I don't know. So, awesome. Yeah. You, you guys both touched on things I want to come back to, but I guess I'll start with when you said it was, you, you were originally thinking a TV show or you, uh, did you pay any attention to like, uh, episode script writers or anything or was that just kind of um, you were just imagining you no know, i was uh i've been like the i think one of the first things i started listening to when i kind of got back into i decided i needed to like study up again right because it'd been so long right um, and i also didn't know these formats very well in, ter- in writing terms so i started listening to uh, ben blacker's uh, tv writers podcast the tv writers panel or the nerdist tv writers panel um and he would always he has like you know four to five folks on the show every week and just talk through stuff and it's been going for a year seven or eight years now and so i really got into that and then sort of like with comics i have my foundational like 80s tv show aspirations and knowledge like all the like uh, there was a show in the eighties called what called wise guy. It's like a mob show by the same guy that did the A team and all the, you know, riptide and all those 80 shows that we would all think of as like the action adventure stuff. Yeah. I'm um, going to be honest. You're speaking a little bit outside of my purview. Yes. It's a generational thing. It's Pro- okay. Probably, probably everybody. Um, so, you know, I was like hearkening back to some of that stuff, uh, which is that same time frame as, you know, Terminator and aliens and all that. And so basically I've been a TV fan for a long time. So I had my sort of go-tos there, but, and Buffy is a huge, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. huge influence for me as was, uh, Veronica Mars. So in a more, in a more recent time slice, uh, that those two and, you know, definitely something that was in my head, um, when I was writing this, I think especially Veronica Mars, cause it had just kind of wrapped up when I started the whole like new investigation of writing process. Sure. So do you have any thoughts on the, uh, the, the recent trend of like the, the eighties nostalgia coming back full circle with uh, <laughs> stranger things and all the different, like, like sequels and reboots and stuff. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, you know, like for me, it's always hard cause the original stuff is so good and it's so ingrained in my DNA that it's hard to, it's a little hard to see the same stuff in the new stuff. Um, right. And I also think that like, even as much as I think what I sort of aspire to is like touch the same or like reach the same level as some of that older stuff. I feel like if you're not, if you're creating something that's just a, you know, just an amalgam of a bunch of things from a time frame, it's got to have more to it than that. And I think like stranger things does. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of those things that do, so as long as it's just sort of not an empty nostalgia play, I think I'm on board with it, but it takes a lot of convincing probably to get me to, to warm up to it versus <laughs> just going back to the original stuff. Uh, okay. But then, you know, if you do Fury Road and it is better than the stuff that you preceded it in that franchise back in the 80s, then you've got me. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Cassie, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the the coloring and that was actually something that like 
when I'm reading a comic, the colors don't stand out for me as much unless they are like really, really good or really, really <laughs> poorly selected. But one of the first things I noticed was how much I enjoyed your color palette of kind of the the, the more muted tones of it all. I was curious if you, since you said that you pay attention to coloring and stuff, if you had any insight about the, the process of selecting those or anything that... Man, it was a long time ago. What was my process of choosing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, I don't know, I, I knew I was kind of nervous about coloring a whole comic book and having it look cohesive mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, I didn't want to have it be really jarring from one scene to the next. You're like, wow, this looks like two different people colored this book. And I've seen people lay out like the whole book where they'll do, um, they'll kind of sample it and be like, this is what each page kind of like color scheme is and does it work? Does it go together? And I was like, that's a great idea. That's too much work. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I just, yeah, I kind of started coloring it and got a feel for the colors I thought worked with the story and kind of helped to complement it and yeah it kind of ended up with these muted purples and blues and green sort of colors yeah and I thought it all worked pretty well together uh and then we had to kind of figure out how to do um these flashback sequences too with uh Alien Alex and then um Aisha the human prisoner yeah we kind of went back and forth on those for a little while trying to figure out what the best way to, to convey that was and a lot of it just relied on color, which was, I don't know, kind of fun to play with. Yeah, so I guess touching on the actual book a bit now. So you have the 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 opening pages of Cleo and human Alex, and then it, the majority of the story is with, the, we called him uh, pseudo-Alex. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> who's like, he's he's kind of this father figure, but he's still very much a stranger to her. I mean, there's that, that, that the tension of that, the dual roles and and how their relationship evolves. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like writing that and kind of reconciling the the different aspects of that at all? I mean, I think like it was easier maybe than I thought it would be or than like, I guess maybe thinking back on it, (laughs) then it seems like it should have been. But um, I don't know when you, when you have your, uh, when we had our kids, I was very sort of, you know, you're kind of keyed up and really attuned to what's going on. And I noticed uh, that, you know, you have that new parent thing of not knowing what you're doing. Um, And I think I absorbed a lot of that. And so when I was actually writing that character, um, when I was writing pseudo Alex, which is awesome, and I want to steal that. um, (laughs) It's basically like the fact that you just a lot of times you don't know what you're doing as a parent, right? And you're taking like your best guess. And so one of the things I kind of tried to set up in the human Alex pages, and we actually like kind of went back and forth with our editor at the time, because I wanted to make sure that we built that relationship up enough that the difference between human and pseudo Alex was apparent. And so I wanted to show that human Alex kind of maybe had it more together as a parent and was really keyed into Cleo's emotions and needs and whatnot. And then pseudo Alex was more like the new parent taking a stab at, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with this kid and not really necessarily understanding how to do it and sometimes doing well and sometimes failing. And then the other thing, just from an emotional standpoint for him, that was not necessarily 
I mean, it's related to Cleo, but maybe it's more, uh, more broad is just that like you sometimes when like feel a little, like sometimes like your kid is an alien and sometimes like you're an alien when you're trying <laughs> to like figure this creature out. Uh, so I just wanted to lean into that and yeah. So I think it was, it was about like finding those things that, that made it feel authentic, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed this like, cause there's like a, a 15 page sequence or something like that in the first chapter where mm. uh, the, the entire segment of the story is told without any words. And that's one of my favorite parts of comics. Uh, cause I feel like it really shows how much uh, the writer and the artist trust each other for the storytelling and so I was curious if that was if that was originally in the script or did you have what were there originally dialogue sequences or narration that you then pulled out when you saw what Cassie brought to it? Or uh, how did how did having those extended sequences of silence kind of evolve? I'm curious. Yeah, I think the and Cassie can jump in and correct me if I am misremembering this because it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> but I think, so I believe that that flashback was set up more or less silently, but I think it might've even had like a voiceover when I originally did it. And so the cool part about this and speaking to what you're saying is like that breakdown in those pages is basically all Cassie. Like when I, when she drew that, she was drawing off of my TV style script and okay. not, and not any panel breakdowns or anything. So like she basically took, you know, a paragraph of action as I described it in a real TV sort of way <laughs> um, and decided on most of that sequence, if not all of it herself and how it was going to lay out. So, yeah, so that was super, super awesome and totally a case of like, uh, she knew what she was doing and I did not at that time, uh, even more than now. Um, and so, uh, yeah, she really like brought that whole thing to life. Um, and I think, you know, made it into something that you could relate to versus, uh, what I had there, which was, you know, a real kind of regurgitation of an invasion scene with, uh, that action. <laughs> so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there was a uh, there was a page a few like a a little bit after the whole invasion sequence, uh, with Cleo and pseudo Alex at a convenience store, and we'd actually we'd intended it to be silent, I think, and we both really liked how the storytelling played out on that page, and our editor was like, oh, I think maybe you should add in some some uh, words to get an idea more of what's going on between them or something. And we both were like, uh, I think that this, like, we both really like the silent storytelling too. And there's, there's moments where it works pretty well and can keep it. And like, I don't know. Yeah. There's something really beautiful about when comics writing and the art work together like that, where you don't necessarily need words to tell a story. That's what yeah. so cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think I remember when, uh, Joss Whedon was writing for astonishing X-Men that there was, a, there was a sequence with Colossus that he originally had dialogue in, and then when he got the art back, he just stripped all of his words away for that that sequence because the the art said everything it needed to say. Yeah. Um, and it, it can get kind of bogged down as a reader when you feel like the, the writing and the art are kind of just repeating each other, and so it's really yeah. nice to just just get it and, and not feel like it needs to be, like, hammered home. Yeah. Um, I, I think the sequence that you had when when they first start noticing something weird is going on outside and uh, 
and uh, Cleo s- starts to head out and uh, Alex is like, no, wait here. I'm going to go check it out. That was the moment where I knew that I was going to really enjoy the comic um, cool. because all of that is said just with facial expressions and, and body language. And it's just it's it's a phenomenal scene and a really great, like emotional hook, I felt so. Oh, thank you. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome to hear. So. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the uh, the the kind of subplot, the character plot of uh, the the music quest. Yeah. Um, so when I read it, I kind of saw it as like this idea that like if if you're in like an apocalyptic scenario, you're more aware of the difference between surviving and living, and the the music kind of showcased that for me as being like, what's the point of you know just being able to eat and sleep day in day out if you're not experiencing the things that make humanity beautiful the the art that we create and the things that we pass on to each other and i really felt like the the music helped kind of uh hone in on that that the the importance of humanity and i was curious how that kind of subplot developed and if you if i'm kind of on the right uh path as you guys were in regards to that yeah, I think you are totally on the right path. Um, I was in it. I would say, in addition to that, I was viewing it as uh, so Emily that gives uh, Cleo the list mm-hmm. uh, of stuff or of albums to find. Um, basically, like I think on a real like sort of subconscious level, taking what you're saying and realizing that um, the Cleo was going to need something that was more hopeful to aspire to than just that every day in and out, like surviving. So her sort of like gift to her is to, is to give her this thing that she can aspire to that's beyond that. Yeah. So I, uh, and the other side of it is, and this actually what you're talking about as far as the passing on things from one person to the next and the things we share with each other and everything uh, really comes out a lot in book two, I think also in uh, some interesting ways, hopefully. So yeah. And then for my part, it was sort of like, since I've never been sure, you know, if what other projects I might get to do aside from life formed, I wanted to sort of infuse the book with a bunch of the stuff that I love. Um, <laughs> and, and the music is one of them. The junk food is, <laughs> is another thing. Um, and basically like to give it that thread and that, Cause you're right. You know, if we just, uh, what's the point of going on if you're not enjoying anything or if you don't have anything to look forward to or, and all you're going to do is fight all the time. Like there's gotta be more to it than that. Was the, uh, the selection of music on the list, was that all one-sided or was there a, like some butting heads as to what would make the cut there? <laughs> uh, I, think... I think it was all mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm, uh, yeah, I've been, I mean, one of the things that sort of, I was going to say derailed, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, that, that derailed my writing was trying to uh, have a band for like 20 years. So I've definitely got my my selections and stuff. And I tried to, um, hopefully I tried to branch out from, or actually like in doing my research for the list, uh, I, you know, made sure I was listening to a wider cross-section of stuff than I might usually so that it felt sure. a little more like something that, you know, a little more believable in that respect and a little more updated maybe um, than I might just be if you went off the top of my head. Uh, right. And 
and then we also wanted with that to have the connection that Emily is uh, knew Alex from his work in the record store when he was younger. And so um, it was also like a way to have a connection between her and Emily, a, a different connection between her and her human dad, who's now gone. And it's something that, you know, Al, that pseudo Alex doesn't really get. So, um, yeah, it just felt up, like it set up some cool uh, interactions there, you know, leading up to like her giving Alex the uh, Men Without Hats t-shirt in the record store and that kind of thing. So Right. Uh, yeah, I like I like the that you mentioned uh, trying to make it a little bit more believable because I get so tired of seeing like the best albums of all time and it's always the same ones. It's like you, you got your Dark Side of the Moon, you got like three Beatles albums, you got Pet Sounds and stuff. And it's nice to see like a little bit of variety in there. Yeah. Um, I only know one album like like that I have listened to off of that entire list, which oh, is Fever cool. Ray. But okay. Uh, yeah, we, nice. we do um, have it as a playlist on Spotify. So oh, that's awesome! Oh, yes. <laughs> I'll, uh, yeah, I'll drop you a link to that. Um, it's pretty great. And I actually, like uh, Fever Ray was huge. Like I found them right in the found them. I I came across them on Spotify right in the middle of the writing of the book, and so they were of all the things I listened to, probably them and uh, Now Now were the ones that. I would say we're mostly like the soundtrack for writing the book. So cool. I was yeah. actually going to ask if there, if either of you were like specifically, cause I know when I write, um, like I'm working on a story right now where each chapter is from a different person's perspective. And I chose an album to kind of represent each person to kind of influence their like inner voice and stuff. And so I was curious if you guys had any music that was particularly like influential or useful when you were going about your process. And that kind of answers it. What uh, what 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 did you play in the band? Uh, I sang and played guitar in a oh, okay. in a very garage rock, uh, nice. you know, in, incompetent um, sort of way. But <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. So, are y'all listening to anything right now that you're really really digging, or anything that's influencing the 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 second volume or any other projects that you're working on? I don't know. I feel like I always listen to a wide range of things. Okay. Um, like I also really love podcasts. Which yeah. I can only listen to if I'm like inking or coloring usually. Penciling sometimes, I guess, but thumbnailing or layouts, it's like takes up too much brain space. But right now I really like Lord Huron. His music's or their music's really beautiful. That's good stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, the band Joseph. It's like three sisters who write their own songs. Their music's really great. Yeah, and I don't know if you've heard the band Rainbow Kitten Surprise. Their name is ridiculous. <laughs> nope. nope, that's new. Pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That feels like something Addie would enjoy. Um, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like the name of it implies, I guess. But. Okay. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot. You mentioned Stranger Things, and this I've been the soundtrack for both seasons, I think oh. I listen to quite a bit when I'm writing and that's, you know, obviously very eighties influenced. And like, so I listen to that. I listen to a lot of uh, Tangerine dream soundtracks from the eighties. They did like, you know, a lot of the stuff that the stranger Things soundtrack is based on. And what's, Oh, uh, Cliff Martinez, who does tons of movie soundtracks. Um, okay. he did the soundtrack for drive, but anyway, he did this show called the Nick, um, 
that was really great uh, with Steven Soderbergh. But the soundtracks for that are fantastic writing music. Um, and there's both seasons of that are available on Spotify too. So a lot of the times if I have any question of what I'm going to put on, I just throw that on. And that's sort of like the first three hours of my day while I'm writing. So the trilogy of how to train your dragon soundtracks are like my go-to for like blocking out anything. Interesting. Yeah, those are also great. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything else that you thought about that you wanted to specifically include in your own version of the end of the world that you felt like maybe hadn't been touched on as much or that you really liked when you did see it just to make it feel more like your own apocalypse or invasion as opposed to just another? Well, I really like the the rating of the convenience stores and yeah gorging on uh junk food uh <laughs> i mean i'm sure that they probably got like beans and stuff too but uh we only ever see them eating like pop tarts and skittles um <laughs> i think that's, that's fun uh and a fun way to add like kind of some I, I guess humanity to the story in a way yeah. plus it was it was fun to make up fake snack names <laughs> um have you seen uh what is it a quiet place Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, but that opening sequence, like, I, whenever I think of, like, like the rating for supplies and stuff, that's, like, one of my favorite examples of that sort of thing. Yeah, um, totally. But I, I do love, because uh, it seems like every fictional world needs to have its own version of, like, some sort of, like, puffy, hyper-cheesy junk food, and no one ever <laughs> names it the same thing twice, so there's just, like... <laughs> Like 30 fake names for these like kind of Cheeto-y things. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I wanted so bad to be able to have real Cheetos, but it just, you know, I tried to look around to figure out how to even get permission. And I said, yes, yeah, so it's like, wasn't wasn't worth it. I invested my permission getting in the music stuff instead. But uh, <laughs> yeah, sad, sadly, like I, the, the junk food eating was just so second nature to me that I didn't even think I was adding anything to uh, the story um, I would just be using it as like well I burned a lot of calories today walking around I should eat some junk food um, yeah I'm trying to think like uh, it's good math yeah exactly <laughs> you got to give yourself something when you're uh, yeah. wandering through the apocalypse um, <laughs> I mean I like I like a quiet place is great I, I like the idea of like I don't know the quiet of it all or like what that would be, and not not in the necessarily quiet place way quiet of it all but just like the quiet moments that cleo has where like yeah. the world has stopped you know like it's the many many end of the world movies that's my sort of my favorite part is like all the the montage of shots you know going around yeah. where nothing's yeah. happening so yeah leaning into that stuff is fun and there's a lot of in the second book especially like we get to explore some it's the second book is set in portland uh, pretty much in my neighborhood and so like getting to think about like what that would be in a few different spaces uh was fun so yeah i think those those small moments are really that was one of the things that uh when we were discussing the book that was really important for us is you can like a comic because it has like a cool concept and like cool action sequences and stuff but you love it because of those moments at least in our opinion mm -hmm. and so it was it was really important to us as readers that we got those opportunities to just kind of sit with the characters and just kind of see who they are when they're not trying to do any specific story beats, when they're just 
stitching their name onto a backpack or something yeah. like that. And those are those are probably our favorite segments of the comic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like those those moments have always been the most important ones to me too. And I think I'll be interested to see what you think of book two, because I feel like we probably leaned into that a little bit more um, now that we had the opportunity that like the world is set up because that's a lot of a lot of it. I feel like in the first story of anything, you need to set things up. And so you end up sacrificing a few of those character moments as a result. But like I said, I think like we were pretty we weren't adamant about a lot of the process um, with our course, but I think one thing we really stuck to was making sure that we got as many of those moments in there as possible and kept them in there. So, yeah, because I think that's what's going to really keep people invested. Oh, you said something and then I had a thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I just wanted to say how much I appreciated you putting some uh, UW merch in the, the window of one of the, <laughs> the stores because I am a UW alumni. So nice. Appreciated that. I want to nerd out about the alien language because so I would say my two favorite scenes are that opening scene that I talked about with the no dialogue that very first time it happens. And then when Cleo has the alien weapon and she is trying to figure out the, like the activation word yeah. and she keeps repeating it and keeps getting closer and you can see the kind of runic shape adjust until she gets it right. And I was in love with that. I thought that was such a great way to represent it. And I was, I was curious if you when you were developing it, did you always want to represent it that way? Because I, I know a lot of people do alien languages. They'll, it'll just be like gobbledygook with our alphabet or yeah. uh, use some sort of like one-to-one -one ratio with, with uh, other symbols and stuff. But you guys, you stuck to this uh, this single symbol sort of style. And I thought that was really great. I was just curious about that. Yeah, I think I, I kind of looked at a few different styles of languages and writing and, and kind of pieced together some things that I thought worked with the aliens that we had created in their, their world. And in my mind, it's kind of more like, like maybe the Chinese alphabet or something where one symbol can mean like multiple things or, or like, it's not just saying, it's not like one word, like word to word, but yeah. And uh, yeah, that page you mentioned, that's or that sequence, that's one of my favorites too in the book and getting to see uh, and getting to play with language a little bit and the word balloons um, and then kind of taking you out of the, the, the world you've been established in and into this ice cave and stuff and really changing up the colors and stuff too. Yeah, it was really fun to, to play with. What did you feel was uh, both individually and as a creative pair what would you say was the most challenging part uh this first book and it can be it can be anything it can be like there was this one panel where you just could not get the face to do what you wanted <laughs> or it could be something really big and i i know you're a couple years removed from it so i apologize for that okay. i think for me one of the most challenging parts is just the enormity of it i mean it's about 200 comic pages which is a lot so it's a lot of time investment but more than that, I think the most challenging part of the process for me is always thumbnails and laying out the book. Um, so like doing quick little, or not quick, but little sketches about like what the page is going to look like. It just takes so much brain power um, and concentration. 
and I'll get really distracted and be like, I'm going to go on Instagram and then <laughs> finish this. <laughs> but then it's really satisfying when you have this little pile of paper that you're like, this is going to be the whole book. This yeah. is so cool. I, I've made comics in the past and I have no patience for thumbnails. And I know that's really, really bad because that's so important to getting a page to work. Yeah. It, it's it's the it, it's kind of like like for me, and this is one of the hardest things with anything that I try and create, it's the difference between I can just do it once and it'll be all right, mm -hmm. but you have to do it again and again and yep. do all these extra sex to really make it great. And it's just so like getting into that mindset of like, okay, you're gonna do a half dozen takes of this and they're all gonna suck. But yep. eventually the last <laughs> one's gonna be really, really good. It's so hard to get into that brain space where you're okay oh, with investing that much time and effort. So true. I, I try to minimize that a little bit by um so the the thumbnails that I send to Matt and to my editor are they're about like three by five inches and somewhat detailed. I don't know. Uh but before I do that, I'll do like three to five even tinier like actual thumbnail size sketches alongside the script and then I can like do other sketches and like try and figure out pose or getting the shapes right in a, in a panel before I put more time into making it look a little bit prettier and more legible <laughs> but yeah it's a lot of extra work that doesn't end up getting seen really yeah I would say for me it was Cassie's kind of speaking to it, like the sort of the enormity of the undertaking is the comic we made as the pitch was 24 pages, I think. Yeah. Um, and that was all I'd ever done comics wise. So to go from that to almost 200 pages and keep track of everything, like we still, even on volume two, like between the two of us, we're still having a hard time. Like where's Cleo's ray gun? Like it's, is it, over here did we account for it in the right place like um <laughs> and and so like figuring out all that stuff and like i guess it's sort of like a constant challenge because it change it changes each time depending on the story yeah when you're trying to track things across those pages um i think that was that was super daunting especially when it's like and i do i do design stuff during the day and web design and everything and i'm the last thing i'm used to is like a 200 page word document that <laughs> is just like this flat drop of stuff and so trying to work within that was extremely challenging and on top of that like i'd done all my previous writing in the last 5 years was in final draft and so it was like i was translating I translated the script from final draft into word. And then like, then we had the word thing. And then it was, you know, you're getting notes from your editors and like some of the notes are in emails and some of the notes are on the, in the doc. Yeah. Oh, man. And Keeping notes straight is so hard. It's totally, totally. <laughs> There's so many crazy. times that I feel like you give me a note three times before I <laughs> will change it because it just, it gets lost. Yeah, totally. <laughs> And then I'm like, should I send her that note again? I don't... <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and then and even like our editors do it too, right? And then and yeah. on the first book, we had three editors over time because of yeah. changes <laughs> changes at Dark Horse. So like, we got a set of notes from each one and multiple sets from them, and it was, uh, yeah, it was the the scope is certainly challenging, and I keep feeling like there's got to be some way where I can like track things better but i feel like it there's no way it's a word document <laughs> but um yeah so 
three different editors over the course of that. That's Indeed. that must have been a, an adventure. It was unusual, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, there was just it was mostly just turnover stuff. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it made it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> are you past that now do you have like just a one editor from from here on yeah so our final editor um on book one was our editor all the way through for book two um we also have an awesome assistant editor and they've, they've both been really great awesome so i guess the flip side to my last question uh were there any moments or elements in this that you want to plug as being like you know what I'm really friggin' proud of that. I <laughs> I think that that is one of the best things that I've ever done. Or just any portion of the process that was especially enjoyable for you. I can go, I guess. I think the, the ice cave scene that you were talking about felt like a really good coming together of me and of Cassie and me's uh, abilities. And felt like it really was the best version of that uh, came out, I feel like. And then I would say overall, just like working together and like, you know, there's not much better than getting like a bunch of pages that look amazing, <laughs> you know, dropped in the Dropbox or in Drive or email or wherever we, wherever we choose to do it. So just finding someone that you could work with that well, that the end product comes out so great was a really good part of the experience. So, yeah, I, yeah, I would totally agree with that. That ice cave scene was super fun to work on, and I'm really happy with how it came out. Also, looking back, I mean, it's hard because it's like a couple years removed now from that artwork that I'm like, oh, man, I wish I'd done that differently. But there are still, I think, a lot of environments that I drew. I'm like, you know, that that was pretty good. I did an all right <laughs> job on that building. Or, oh, man, the convenience store page. Like, so many chips. <laughs> <laughs> so... The second volume is out later this year, correct? It is, yeah. It comes out in September. Uh, is there anything that you can tease about that at all without giving too much away? I think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess for me, like, if the first book was sort of Terminator for kids, this is, like, No Country for Old Men for kids. Oh, sort God, you Michael. so hard. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah, in my head, like, I mean, this is cheesy and horrible, but like, I, in my head, it was like, yeah, no country for Cleo. Like, this is like, um, yeah, it's, I would say it's that meets me. Like, I really like the leftovers as well. Um, so, like, the leftovers oh my gosh, for yes. kids. Oh, I need to finish that. That was, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, not, well, I don't know. I think it's, I think hopefully we managed to continue to make it like fun and funny, uh, but also heavy and, you know, really emotional. So I think, yeah, other, it's, other than that, it's, it is set in Portland. So they, Cleo and Alex come down from Seattle to Portland. There's lots of cool stuff, new environments and everything to More explore. Alien strangeness. Yes. Yes. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's also there's also a de very decent amount of uh, Jeff Vandermeer uh, Annihilation <laughs> trilogy influence. Oh, okay. yeah. um, <laughs> so uh, hopefully it's all all goodness. So awesome. So when you're when you're working on this, are you are you guys taking it just book by book, or do you have now that you have established that you that people are interested, you got a sequel? Do you have kind of a a, a multi book plan for this, or I mean without saying it's definitively going to be x number of volumes or anything that will yeah i mean we have we definitely have plans uh the actual like 
how those manifest is kind of always up in the air. But I, I, since the first book came out, we've had sort of an overarching end goal set of characters, sort of big, I call it like the first phase of life formed in mind. So yeah, hopefully we'll get to get to get to that. So cool. Are y'all working on anything else that you can, you can talk about either together or separately? This has been the main thing. Cause I just finished up pages for book two, like <laughs> two weeks ago, um, <laughs> but I've been spending some time working on um, a new project that's completely different. Yeah. I'm trying to put together a pitch packet for that. Yeah. I think, this has been the main thing for a while. So I've got a bunch of stuff that's, uh, that's brewing, but nothing definitive yet. So. Gotcha. Yeah. And I guess my last question for you guys, uh, would be what you're reading right now. Ooh. Um, <laughs> I just finished a book. I it's not comic books, That's uh, fine. but, um, I just finished a book called the happy runner, which was awesome. It was like part mental health, part training, but now I'm reading a fluff book by Sarah J. Mass. I forget what it's called, though. <laughs> okay. We, we've actually had some people recommend that we cover Sarah J. Mass for the really? podcast. Yeah, her writing's really great. I love it. I've been, see, I just finished the first uh, omnibus of Matt Wagner's Grendel comic. I uh, saw you post about that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I, um, and, like, I read Grendel when I was a kid, but... And shouldn't have been reading it, but um, <laughs> it's uh, but the omnibus um, or this omnibus had like the one story I'd read back then, but then a whole bunch of other stuff, and it was amazing. And he's a master. Let's see what else. Oh, and then I've been big into like 2000 AD, the British comics magazine. Uh -huh. I sort of like started exploring some of that old stuff and subscribed to the new stuff, and it's super fun and it's it's super interesting to think about because it's it's serialized short stories or serialized uh, like five page stories or whatever and i'm very much not a uh short story person so i've been it's been interesting to try to like both read that for fun and then also like get your head around that shorter uh shorter chapter structure and everything because i don't know how to write anything less than 200 pages so <laughs> i want to learn how to do that uh, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that. Like, it's just gonna be a short little. Oh my god, it just kept going. <laughs> yeah, going. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Cassie knows that all too well. Uh, so, do you want to yeah. do a five-page short story for a promo? I mean, ten pages. I mean, fifteen pages. Yeah. Yep. I wrote. I tried writing. A, I was working on a, a a web comic. This was back in high school, so I don't even want people to go find it. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm just going to make this a short little thing, you know, maybe like 10, 15 page chapters. And then I got to page, I think I got close to page 700. Oh. And I was like, I'm not even halfway through yet. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> it just, it spiraled so far out of control. I was like, there is no, it, there's no way that I can tighten this up. It's just going to keep exponentially increasing into infinity. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think about that with, Gunner Craig Court, that one's been going on so long, and he's got, I don't even know, over a thousand pages probably. Yeah, I have the first two books of that. But that's definitely, yeah, I remember I was reading a little bit of that online for a while, and I, I did notice that it started to expansion creep, just kind of. Yep. You know, just make each chapter a couple pages longer than the last. <laughs> <laughs> just a 
the storyline have go a little bit longer. And then, yeah, when I realized that I had spent close to 250 pages all in the same 24 hour period, I was like, I, something needs to change. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, Cleo working her way through the invasion and learning how to do stuff in there could have easily, uh, I could have easily written 300 pages on that. So I, <laughs> I sympathize. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking this time to, to chat with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for having thank us. You. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And that's going to about do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, Fellow Kids is hosted by Mara and Josh and produced by Josh. Music provided by Ben Ash. Visit him at benash.com if you want to contact us. We're on Twitter and now Instagram at hfkpodcast. You can email at us at hfkpodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Goodreads if you want to keep up with what we've been reading. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Radio Public, just about anywhere that I don't have to pay an additional fee to host us on. And we will be back in not too long actually with i think we're going to be posting our fable haven 2 episode so if you would like to stay up to date with that and make sure you're not getting spoilers go ahead and read fable haven rise of the evening star by brandon mull for next time and hopefully i don't have to record this again because i keep messing with the schedule so take care (laughs) 